Hello, everyone. Welcome to Thinking Inside the Box podcast. I'm Matt Burns. In light of recent events, we are transforming our podcast strategy in three ways. First, by accelerating the release of podcast episodes that we believe will be of greatest service. That starts with our Carrie Chitsey interview, which was released on March 17th and will continue indefinitely. Second, we are scaling our podcast production schedule and aiming to release two to three podcasts each week going forward. We are also actively sourcing experts to share their experiences, wisdom, and practical advice on topics that have suddenly become very relevant to all of us. The far-reaching implications of the COVID-19 pandemic are still not fully understood. Here's what we do know. The near overnight transition of our global workforce has several impacts, including, but not limited to, talent acquisition, operational continuity, internal communications, employee engagement, and leadership at all levels. It's affecting individuals, teams, and entire organizations indiscriminately, often hurting those who are most vulnerable disproportionately. As the days and weeks unfold, the immediate logistics and infrastructure issues that we are now faced with will largely be resolved. Laptops will have been ordered and issued, VPN counts will have been created, and instant messaging and video conferencing services will replace the current in-person conversations that happen in most corporate offices today. Though future challenges will require our attention, including, but not limited to, the implications of prolonged social distancing, restrictions around travel and the flow of goods and services, and broader economic and societal changes that we put in place as we all adopt a new normal. It's definitely not business as usual, and we want to connect you with the information that you need to make informed, evidence-based decisions in the interest of your organization and as people. The best place to find that will be at bentohr.com or on my personal LinkedIn account. Finally, myself and the entire Bento HR team will make ourselves available to our community like never before, including the introduction of frequent barrier-free opportunities to connect, share knowledge, and support one another. Additional information will be shared on this in the coming days. And again, you can find the latest at bentohr.com or on my personal LinkedIn account. These are trying times, that is no doubt. But know that we are here to support you as you support others. Until then, it's important to be kind to ourselves and to one another. We're all in this together, and let's be safe. And now we'll return to regular podcast programming. If I speak to them or line management about when was the last time you had any investment in training or coaching, I mean, they, are, they look at me blankly a lot of the time. <laughs> they're not being trained. They're not being coached. No. Often people, Matt, this is the huge surprise. I mean, in the last sort of six, eight months, I've been doing more work in corporates, in the financial services sector, for instance. And even there, I am meeting people in leadership roles who never received any formal management training. Constraints drive innovation. Hey everyone, it's Matt here for another episode of Thinking Inside the Box, the show where each week we'll tackle the most complex issues related to work and culture. If you're interested in checking out our other content, you can find us at bentohr.com, on YouTube, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts by searching Thinking Inside the Box. In this episode, I chat with Catherine Delapore, founder of Halcyon, a management consulting firm based in London, England. Though as I say it aloud, it strikes me that Catherine, what she really offers is a coaching practice. She leans heavily on emotional intelligence and works with leaders and businesses around the world in helping them become more effective in managing change and more effective in general terms. Catherine has a diverse background with a degree in anthropology, certifications in coaching and emotional intelligence, and a professional career that spans publishing, business development, and ultimately talent management. In the over two years I've known Catherine, we've become good friends. And this will no doubt be another fascinating, meaningful conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Catherine, so great to chat today. Great to talk to you as well, Matt. And what are we going to talk about? What it is to be human. 
That's a small question. What, if, what is tokenism <laughs> and the future of work? Oh. Okay, so in the context of the future of work, because I think there are a lot of people out there who are very concerned about their futures. And I don't think they necessarily need to be concerned. I think there are, there's so much possibility and there's so much opportunity in this new world of work. And I think, well, you and I have both almost kind of proven that in terms of our own ability to reinvent and reimagine our own careers. That's not to say that there wasn't a time in my life where I remember having left a job uh, with two small children at home thinking, what am I going to do now? (laughs) So, but you know, fear is a good thing. Sometimes it gives you that clarity of thinking. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you and I have spoken before the stuff that I'm interested in primarily is human motivation and human performance. And I'm also kind of geeky with the tech piece. (laughs) I like my tech. I may not understand the tech, but I'm excited about it. I'm just fascinated by artificial intelligence and robots and what that means. But most of all, I'm I'm interested in in human beings and the amazing potential that we all have. So let's talk about that potential. You you started this uh, conversation by talking about the future of work and, and humanity in that context. Uh, and you alluded to some concerns that individuals have about their place in this future of work. Obviously, industries are being disrupted. Organizations are being overturned. We're seeing massive automation. We're seeing technology integration at rates never, ever before seen in, in our human existence. And there's obviously a massive shift in the economy as a result. And I think you're right. There are absolutely people who are worried about their place in this, air quotes, new world of work. And I also think you're right in that there's a ton of opportunity in the new world of work. I, I think the having been through the experience recently, and I would argue, Catherine, I'm still very much 18 months in, still going through the experience of that transition. Um, yeah. I still find myself falling into bad habits from my corporate life. You know, I was teasing somebody yesterday. Uh, we were out for coffee, and they asked me, like, what was the hardest part about making the transition from executive to entrepreneur? And my answer was, I hadn't actually worked in the preceding five years before I left, I'd spent 50 hours a week in meetings. I directed work. I had managed, you know, in shepherd projects through political environments and to see them completed, managed stakeholders, but never actually picked up the tools and did the job. And that was a bit scary when you realize that you've made a bet on your future with a skill set that you don't have. And to have that realization after you've already made the jump and, and closed the door on the corporate career and, you know, announced to, to the people around you, this is what your intentions are and seemingly with enough confidence, energy to convince them that you know what you're doing more often than not having that, that fear that I think a lot of people are feeling right now is completely normal, yeah. but you have to push yourself past it experientially in my experience in order for it to go away. And once you do, I think you would agree that the upside far outweighs the concerns that you may have. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. And what would they be for you? Like, what are the things you talk about? Like these, you know, the the great revelations that you've had, what are some of those things? Okay. So the biggest one for me, Matt, is freedom, Mm. which sounds really strange to say out loud, but it's, it's, it's tangibly that, that I plan my day exactly as I want it. I work with the people that I want to work with, obviously within, within reason. Sometimes you, you know, you land projects that may not be your first choice of project, but you know, sure. that's, that's life. But I, I think, yeah, that free, freedom to think, freedom to express myself in the way that I want to express myself, connecting with the people that I want to connect with. Actually, I think that connection piece is also quite significant for me. I think I've spent, I think I spent a lot of my time in corporate or not, not corporate life, because I was never in corporate life, but the companies that I worked with in and with pretty much being an individual contributor mm. labeled as a manager, labeled as a leader, but really operating as an individual contributor for much of that time, I would say probably latterly in the, in the last two or three years of my career, I would say I probably stepped into that leadership role more so. But I mean, you know, you know that I've, I've really only worked in entrepreneurial businesses. So I suppose that was kind of, par for the course 
But I think, yeah, that freedom and that connection piece, almost actually the opposite of, of how my indentured life worked. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, and, and here's the thing. I, I, I think everyone to a certain point has a, a, you know, in our age group has a certain, a certain perspective. I remember a world where someone gave me my first Blackberry. Like I remember the day when someone gave me a Blackberry and a laptop and said, Hey Matt, here's your new company issued technologies. And I went, this is my naivete at the time, Catherine. I was like, Oh my God. Yes. I can now work from home. I can be, I can be more productive now. I was usually staying late in the office, but now I can go home at you know a reasonable hour and take my work home with me. And that's going to be a huge convenience for me. Well, then I flash forward 15 years later and go, yeah, this was one of the worst things that happened to the workplace when it comes to, you know, corporate employees. And now there is no disconnection between work and your time. And you talked about freedom. That's the word I would use too. So I don't think it's corny. The biggest change I've noticed is that my time now is entirely mine. So I, I am able to trade it. I am able to value it. I am able to you know, hoard it. I am able to, uh, it is my resource that I can use. When I worked in a corporate setting, I, I didn't realize how little the, the time actually was mine and how it was somebody else's. And when you think about what you're trading off for that, 25, 30 years ago, you know, even, you know, even when I was a kid, my, you know, my parents pushed me into the traditional kind of corporate path and said, you know, like, like aspirationally, you want to work for big companies. You want to climb the proverbial corporate ladder. You want to find those jobs that your parents would brag about at dinner parties. Like that was kind of, you wanted a profession, you wanted a career. And working in a big company was seen as stability and was seen as a level of pragmatism. And then you look at today's reality and those bigger companies in a lot of cases are the ones that are most at risk of disruption. The ones who go through the most amount of restructuring activities or mergers and acquisitions. They're often the most volatile organizations now from an impact to the individual perspective. And you start to think about it. Well, if you no longer have the security and stability of a large organization, and you certainly don't have a level of freedom with a large organization that you would in a more smaller venture working for yourself, other than the consistent paycheck, what do you really have? Absolutely. And look, and that, that's the trade though, isn't it? It's you give up your freedom because the corporation gives you training. It gives you probably a job for life if you want it. And then it looks after you when you're old with a pension. And I guess maybe this is the position, maybe, and we, you talked earlier off, off uh, air about us being in privileged positions. And I, I, I want to bring it up because I think it's, I couldn't agree with you more. I would argue that my story is not one. I think if we actually went back through my story, we would hear lots of stories of how I effort yielded results. So, but having said that, there's, there's no degree, there's no argument. There was a degree of privilege in my life in the fact that I didn't have to start from a deficit and opportunities weren't taken away from me because of dot, dot, dot. So I definitely come from a position of, of, of privilege around, around that particular topic. I think this is, I I think a lot of people, Matt, have got stuck with this idea that nothing has changed, Mm. that, you know, that the training is still there when it's not, the job for life is still there and it's not, and the pension is still there. Well, for some people, maybe, I don't know, possibly people older than us have got the, the luxury of a final salary. But for most people working now, I mean, I have conversations all the time with L&D people when I'm pitching for coaching work or facilitation work. And if I speak to them or line management about when was the last time you had any investment in training or coaching? I mean, they they look at me blankly a lot of the time. (laughs) They're not being trained. They're not being coached. No. Often people, Matt, this is the huge surprise. I mean, in the last sort of six, eight months, I've been doing more work in corporates in the financial services sector, for instance. And even there, I am meeting people in leadership roles who never received any formal management training. And actually, in their first leader role, they've been given a coach, me, to work with. And it's just so interesting. So actually, the rules of engagement have changed, have changed. I mean, you know, let's just put it out there. The rules of engagement... That contract 
with your employer to look after you for the rest of your life just isn't what it was when our parents were working. And I think facing that fact, as scary as it is to think about that, hopefully will prompt people to think, okay, maybe there is something I can do differently. Plus, obviously, you know, there are so many more people now in minimum wage jobs, in uh, zero hours contracts. But I think, I think the, the, the biggest problem is, and let's go back to this, the privilege word, is we were able to step off the train because we had some economic freedom to go and retrain ourselves or certainly to plug into very good live networks of people who were able and willing to support us through the, through the transition. Sure. And I think there are a lot of people who haven't got that network. So even if, even if they, they were sitting in a, a, a job today and they thought, actually, I could get onto Google and I, if I, I really want to be, uh, I don't know, uh, engineer or a user experience designer, I want to do something completely different with my life. There's a lot of courses you and I both know online where they could upskill themselves probably for not a lot of money. But the issue is, once they've done that, how do they then reconnect with meaningful work, work that will pay them a living wage that isn't working for somebody? Well, um, so, I mean, I have so much to say to that. First off, I'll extend the privilege conversation one step further. So when I was in my last HR executive roles, I had line of sight to a number of large restructuring activities in big organizations. Mm -hmm. And I share that because I saw how business-like they went about the exercise of exiting hundreds, if not thousands of people from their jobs. And it wasn't because these people weren't the hardest working people. It wasn't because they didn't dedicate their lives to work. It wasn't because they weren't, you know, that they had really strong boundaries around work-life balance. Like it wasn't, you know, that wasn't the reason they lost their jobs. They lost their jobs because they were usually in a function uh, or a role that was deemed no longer essential in the future strategy of the organization. Mm -hmm. And that is a very interesting microcosm for what's happening more broadly with the economics of what's happening now. When you see taxi drivers, you know, disputing with Uber, uh, when you see retail workers walking out for living wages while their jobs are being automated with, kiosks and self-serve kiosks and things of that nature. There's this tension between progress and those who don't want things to change in it, which has a material impact to them economically. Yes. In a way that doesn't impact you and I. Yeah. And that's, those are, so those are two different other types of things that I think about. And at the same time, I struggle with where the responsibility lies for that problem. I think I see a lot of finger pointing. I see a lot of people pointing at government or at organizations or at, you know, post-secondary educational institutions and all asking them to solve the problem. And the answer probably is all the above, but I, I struggle with when are we going to stop talking about the problem and when are we going to start taking action towards the solution? Yeah. I think for me, the, the, it, I mean, look, it's, it's got to start with education. That's where it's got to start. Education is broken in the same way that, the current way of ways of working have have been broken for quite some time and i'm seeing it right now i'm experiencing that as a parent to two 14 year old boys who are at a very very good school it's a community school local to us and when i went into that school to evaluate it and decide if i wanted to send them there um i was very much sold on the kind of the principles of beyond education, actually, good citizenship and making them into rounded, well-educated young men who would make a contribution to the world. Mm. Uh, what, I'm, what I am seeing, and I, I, and I don't dispute for a second that some of that isn't going on, but what I, what I see with my children is an exam factory in the same way that I see work as a work factory. These are factories and the factories have got to go. Yeah. Because they are, they're, they're crushing, they're crushing the human spirit. 
and they are causing sickness. They are causing illness. I mean, I would say, I would say now that since doing my own thing, that my psychological health, my physical health has never been better. Mm. And maybe that's partly to do with the fact that I'm older and I'm wiser and I kind of know a bit more about, you know, all of that stuff and, and the self-care piece. But unfortunately, the way that the world of work is set up at the moment and to a certain extent, the way that schools are set up, they're not set up in, for humans to flourish. They are not set up for humans to, well, frankly, to play, to enjoy life, to do all the stuff that we like to do. And guess what? Most of that isn't doing focused work. Well, there's, there's absolutely no argument that the, tr- the traditional, you call them factories, I'll call them institutions, we can call them you know, the establishment. There was absolutely a top-down methodology that is permeated through that, that whole sphere. Mm-hmm. Paternalistic, maternalistic, pick your poison. But there was this level of we have, we have resources and we're going to disseminate them down to you in smaller pieces based on what we think you need to know to be able to effectively support us kind of thing education, like, you know, very lecture driven or self-study, but, but not facilitated conversation very rarely in that case. So I think, I think that is where we've come from. And I think we agree that the utility of that model doesn't really make sense for a bunch of reasons, not the least of which is that it is hurting us, but I would also argue that it doesn't move fast enough for the rate of change, which is causing a greater stressor. I think it's, as it gets further and further away from what we should be operating at, I think that creates more tension. In, yeah. you know, if you if you will, if you want to bring back the factory analogy, it creates more disruption in the network. It creates more friction on the assembly line. We only have we have finite amount of capacity as humans to be able to you know go through this life. And many people that I talk to are overwhelmed with inputs because we're we're trying to cram progress down a very narrow tube. And I think part of the solution that we've talked about in this conversation is around creating opportunities for people to transition themselves, to be transitioned, to go through from wherever they are to wherever they need to be to have more success in the future. I also spend time thinking about is how do we architect for those that, for those that that's not possible. So for the individual that says, I'm never going to be an entrepreneur, like I'm never going to be able to make that jump. I, for whatever reason, I can't. I also want to spend some time thinking about how do we make the existing workplaces that we have in those contexts more human and how do we prove that you can do that while also delivering a really solid financial result? Because I think there's a misconception out there that that those two things are at odds with one another. When in fact, especially in today's reality, they're actually not. No, look, I completely agree agree with you on that. I mean, this idea that humanizing the workforce yeah it will have a negative effect is nuts yeah not not least because there is just so much data now about what is it that you know how do humans work physiologically neurologically all the information is there to inform us about how to create not only an external environment, but, but also this whole piece around, and we've spoken about this before, intrinsic motivation. The reason that I get out of bed every morning to do a job, to do a good job, to do the best that I can be is not about external factors. It's mm-hmm. about I'm doing something because it is meaningful to me. I'm, I'm doing it because there is purpose in that work. And that purpose is far beyond a paycheck it's many there's many different angles around that but ultimately it's linked to the work that i do with emotional intelligence which is you know we all have emotions and those emotions are linked to our how we think about the world so the way we think informs the way we feel informs the way we behave and it goes back to biology um, and it goes back to the the basis the basis of maslow's hierarchy of need around you know the basics that we as humans need to exist food and shelter and then above that we need to belong we need to feel safe we need to feel autonomous we have we need we we need to have power and control over our futures and we need to feel valued which is actually the freedom that's that's the kind of creativity and but at the top of that pyramid is 
this word, which it's a bit of a funny word, self-actualization, but it's the purpose piece. It's that I am actually contributing something to the world. Mm-hmm. And humans want that. They, they are wired for that. And that's actually, in a sense, that's the highest form of humanity is moving away from selfishness towards this state of connectedness with other humans to the point where you are doing something for others and for society. That's, that, that's, that's really becoming human. It's getting over yourself, getting over your basic needs, your emotional, personal needs. And it's the ability to, it's mature. You know what, Matt? It's, it, there's, a, there's an element of maturity in there as well. Growing up and realizing that you are not the center of the universe I mean, some biologists, it's interesting, you know, my background's anthropology, so I'm, I'm interested in the sort of bio, bio, bio and as well as the cultural piece. And there's, some, there's lots of argument to say that, you know, teenagers and young adults are wired to be selfish because they need to go out and set out alone and cut their, the, their, the apron strings with, with home and, you know, right. forge a, a life for themselves. And I can see that. That kind of makes sense. And it certainly sums up my life in the first sort of 20 years, probably. (laughs) Maybe 30 years, actually. It was probably for me having children that really suddenly opened my eyes to the fact that, yeah, I was this tiny little dot in the the universe. And actually, I had these two tiny babies and they needed me. And... That was probably probably the beginning of my ability to switch my mind out of selfish mode into something else, something far more interesting and something liberating. And I've just actually picked up this amazing book that I'm reading at the moment, that, which is called Becoming Human. And I mm. thought this might appeal to you, Matt, because we just talked about this, the freedom um, piece for both of us. And it, he's, he says here, freedom is also the death of the false self. Interesting. Mm. I mean, we, yeah. No, Go ahead. Have, we, have we been liberated from our egos, Matt? I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't think I've been liberated from mine. I can tell you that for sure. <laughs> no, probably, probably not quite yet. <laughs> no. And I, I think... You raise, as always, a number of interesting points. The first thing, when you said intrinsic motivation, I smiled because, yes, we have talked about intrinsic motivation, I think, every time we've spoken. If I follow the bouncing ball and try and tie this all together, to me, intrinsic motivation is a precursor to discretionary effort, which is essential in a knowledge-based economy where you have to measure inputs, not outputs. Yes. So when we talk about self-actualization, when we talk about organizations doing the right thing and becoming more human, when we talk about individuals having more purpose, I think the piece that I want more people to, to understand, and it's something that took me a long time to figure out, to be fair, is that all those things are not mutually exclusive and they're not competing with one another. They're actually all in service to one another. But we seemingly create these lines of battle, if you will, or we create some you know, rules of engagement that put them at odds with one another. When if we just, if we were all working towards a similar goal, but we're able to contextualize it in the manner that resonated best with that individual. Like if I'm sitting down with a, a board chair of a hundred plus year old company, I'm probably going to have the conversation around intrinsic motivation as a precursor to discretionary effort, as a precursor to profitability further and faster than I would be having a chat with them about self-actualization. Just so I would, well, I'd put it in, the, in terms that make sense for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and the, you know, the great, the, the, the thing that gives me hope, Matt, uh, around all of this is the fact that, and in fact, I was speaking to um, some hedge fund managers uh, earlier this week, and we were talking about the rise and rise of sustainable investing mm. and, this piece, ESG, environmental social governance. And I think this is a really interesting area. And it's obviously it's driven by consumer behavior because increasingly the generations coming up behind us are 
very well socially are networked very well networked they are the you know the the digital generations and they want to know that the organizations that they are purchasing from are having a positive impact on the planet on society and are doing the right thing when it comes to running a running a business so that's i'm talking about obviously ethical yeah ethically running their businesses having diverse and inclusive boards um, and all that kind of stuff. But I do think there is a blind spot within environmental, social and governance and sustainable investing. And I scratch my head all the time about this piece around health and well-being and mm. why it seems to be taking organizations so long to get their heads around the fact that a workforce that is mentally fit emotionally fit and physically fit is going to perform much better than a than a workforce that is broken that is physically unwell because of the stress and the uncertainty that may be suffering from depression anxiety experiencing loneliness all of those factors that are making people ill that are raising and, and the numbers are clear around absenteeism and presenteeism in the work in the workplace and yet trying to have conversations around this health and wellness uh, piece is hugely challenging and there seems to be a lot of talk going on around putting health human health and well-being central to strategy and yet time and time again when i go and talk to organizations about this and I think I can have this conversation at the board level. I am suddenly being introduced to people, lovely people, very well-intentioned people who are probably four, five, six steps away from where real decisions are being made, where financial decisions are being made. And that, and that I find it really curious. Hey everyone, it's Matt here. I hope you're enjoying the show. Before we continue though, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Lena AI. The future of work is today and faced with pressure to reduce costs while simultaneously enhancing their employee experiences, Coca-Cola Beverages Vietnam turned to Lena AI for their technology solution. And like a lot of organizations, Coca-Cola was inundated with employee queries. Everything from leave status requests, policy and payroll queries, and they want a technological solution that was not only scalable, but also provided a unique employee experience. So they deployed Lena AI's proprietary chatbot and integrated it with their workplace by Facebook module and saw immediate results. Now, full disclosure, I do sit on Lena AI's advisory board, but that's because I am passionate about innovation and technology within the HR profession. I believe we need better tools in order to have success and to contribute more to our organizations. And because I sit on the board, we have received an exclusive discount. By using the code BENTO25 at purchase, you will receive 25% off of your transaction with Lena AI. So for more information, please log on to lena.ai and use the code BENTO25 to receive 25% off your purchase. And now, back to our show. Do you have a hypothesis? Well, I think, you know, I think there are companies who are slowly but surely getting their head around it. I mean, Zappos is, has been doing some really interesting work around emotional fitness and how that impacts, how feelings basically impact uh, collaboration in, in teams. So obviously positive feeling leading to positive or positive thought, positive feeling, positive behavior, collaborative behavior and vice versa. And there are lots of pockets of excellence. There's, there are companies moving. I mean, there, there are people now creating these most extraordinary job titles around director of belonging, diversity, inclusion, and something else, performance. But it, it really doesn't get to, for me, if you strip everything away and just think, okay, you have a human being who is a living, breathing, sentient being. And you're putting them in an environment where external factors need to be 
curated in a certain way for optimal performance. And also you need to help them to make sure that their intrinsic motivation, that discretionary piece that you just said, is also kept switched on, which is all about self-care and the psychological psychological well-being, psychological safety, all of that sort of sort of thing. And yet so many companies haven't made can't won't make that move and yet it's it, you know the, for, for me it's it's not a difficult equation to be able to say if you have a fit human being who is working in an environment culturally that allows them to speak up that gives them freedom that makes them feel safe that gives them a real sense of belonging, but at the same time balances that with the autonomy piece, with the ability, the ability for people to think for themselves. If you achieve that and that the technology, the technology infrastructure is promoting and encouraging humans to do good work and that the actual physical workspace is promoting and encouraging humans to work in different modes. And yet it's this human health and well-being piece just isn't getting the attention it needs at the top table. And I, and I really, I scratch my head. If I, I think, was invest- I think if it's I was- because human problems are human problems. Hmm. So you've said, you've said clearly, and I agree with you, there's lots of evidence that supports the idea that creating and fostering and nurturing a healthy workplace is beneficial to an organization's financial results. So that's, we start from that premise. We also can agree that there are now more tools than ever before that allow us to digitize our workforce, reduce the monotonous, repetitive administration tasks that nobody likes to do, that connects human beings in remote working environments in ways we never have been able to connect before, in, in libera- liberates us in, in, you know, in, a, in a corporate context. And yet we, just, we still see, to your point, examples of organizations that have not made the shift and unfortunately, my experience has been is that when I've had those conversations with individuals that fall into that bucket, what I butt up against is their own personal values and their own personal biases. And that's where the decisions become less about what the data says and what the, what the results and the evidence tells you and more about more of an instinctual values type of a decision. And I just think that's why we still see the disconnect. And that's in a, not in all cases, but I think in some cases, unfortunately, that is why it exists. Some people just frankly don't think that we should invest a bunch of time in making sure everybody else is okay, that you should look after yourself. And I think that is an inherently flawed way with which to build an organizational culture. But unfortunately, that is what we do find in some organizational cultures. Well, okay, that may be as it is, and I'm sure you're right. And certainly that's what I've experienced. But I do think that for those organizations who do get it and do move to that place around both organizational resilience and making sure that their workforce are resilient in, this, in the sense of healthy health, putting health, human health first, they'll win. That is pure and simple competitive advantage as, as far as I'm concerned. That is a, a, a huge differentiator. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's exactly the answer. I think that if we, if what we're, if you believe what we've said, and if you, uh, you know, if what we said holds any weight, and we make the connection between intrinsic motivation as a mechanism of discretionary effort, the organizations that are able to tap into that are going to just get better results because technology will level the playing field in more other in other areas of the business. Big companies now have a significant advantage in their technology that small companies do not. That will change in the next, it's already changing now, but it will continue to change in the, in the coming years. Mm. So back office administration, which is currently being done by a bookkeeper or by an office manager in a small dominion business and is being done by software in large organizations, they will both have the advantages of the technology to be able to do that. They will achieve efficiencies through automation. They will achieve efficiencies through being able to outsource their work globally that traditionally only large organizations had access to. We have democratized 
that in a big way. And that's why you see a lot of organizations go from zero to seven, eight, nine figures in revenue in very short periods of time because you can build something and scale it really quickly. And if you build it with the, with the, in an in a intentional way and prioritize the psychological safety and the health and wellness of your employees and you do it right from the get-go, you will only have a larger advantage as you go to disrupt the markets yes. that are not built that way and unfortunately will not be able to change fast enough to keep pace with somebody who's really intentional, really purposeful and really gets it. I think, the, I think, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that the biggest disconnect, Matt, that I see in so many organizations is this piece around collaboration. So I think this year, this is the year, 2020, the year of collaboration. I'm, I'm literally speak. everybody I speak to seems to be talking about the collaboration piece. We, we you know, break down the silos, let's collaborate. <laughs> and, do you, do you, and do you know what the biggest factor that will stop people collaborating? Let's, let's think about this for a second. The single biggest thing that stops people from wanting to work together is stress. Mm. Because when you're stressed, when you are in fear mode, you just want to look after number one, yourself. You don't want to help anybody else, let alone collaborate with them. And I remember, I remember if I go back to the beginning of my career and I started out in sales and we did this team leadership, not leadership, but team building away thing in the Brecon Beacons in Wales. And we had to do this, this exercise before dinner where we had to walk up this really steep hill. So I'm like, I don't know, 23 at the time, reasonably fit at that point. And even I, I, I was like most, most of the way up the hill, it was quite a mixed age group across the team. And the further up we, we got, obviously the more tired we became and we were all, we were quite hungry and we traveled on a bus down to this, to this leadership center, this, this team building center. And seriously, I have experienced that when you are tired, when you are stressed out, when you are hungry, you don't care about anybody else. It's literally self-preservation time. And so it's these toxic workplaces or these workplaces, even if you don't want to call them toxic, that are not enabling people to have any kind of say in terms of their how they run their day. So that's the autonomy piece, who they don't feel safe, they don't there's no sense of belonging or it feels like fake belonging and they have no freedom or they have relative freedom, they are not mentally and emotionally and physically able to collaborate. The brain chemicals are not right for collaboration. That's the point. That's the tragedy, Matt, of the situation. That is the tragedy. Is that the system is built to make collaboration less likely? Yes, absolutely. The thing that they want the thing that they need and that they want to do in order to move fast and break things and be innovative, they've actually created the opposite of that. And, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. And it goes back to a question that I asked earlier, which is who's responsible? It's a, do you know what? The answer to that is it is a joint responsibility. Absolutely. So, okay. it, is a, it is a responsibility of, 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 an, of the individual to do you know to take care of themselves to make sure they eat properly and sleep properly and yeah invest in time on themselves with themselves therapy counseling going out enjoying dinner with friends all of those things are incredibly important for the individual but at the same time organizations can facilitate those inflection points in a person's day where they can recharge, where they can rest, where they can recover. I mean, to the point where I believe Google, for instance, has now said to its employees, you can have whatever it is, 45 minutes a day in your work day to go to the gym, to go and do some yoga, to go for a walk as part of the working day, because they know that those endorphins are going to absolutely help with good decision-making afterwards with clarity of thinking will expedite that individual's learning capability. All of the things that companies now want around mental agility 
is only powered by people being physically, emotionally, and psychologically fit, mentally fit. But we've achieved the opposite of that. Um, so, so, that, so there is an individual responsibility, but facilitated by organisations. And I'm talking here, of course, about, you know, ridiculously long hours, that, that a culture of long hours, of emailing at midnight, this lunacy, unfortunately, that a lot of leaders continue to role model because they don't know anything else. They don't know how to stop. They don't know how to get off the bus. And so the habit continues. So there is individual responsibility, but there is also organizational responsibility. And that is the culture piece. And that is the physical workspace piece. And that is also the technology piece. So it's, it's a two-way street. And I, I agree with you. I think ultimately it comes down to it's a shared responsibility. And there's a lot of parties that need to play a role in the solution. And the individual is part of it. And the organization is part of it. We've talked about how each of those parties are incentivized by a move towards a more human centric culture. And I guess where I've landed personally, because I've thought about this a lot. And as somebody who has a digital transformation consultancy business, I see both sides of this question a lot. As somebody who is an, a recent entrepreneur, I can relate to a lot of the things that you say personally. Uh, we've had conversations before you and I about some of the challenges I've had in my past with mental illness and anxiety in particular. And so when you say things about collaboration in the context of fright or flight, I can tell you that when you're operating in a, in a, a latent level of anxiety most of your life, that, and that's the state that you're operating in, you're right. Collaboration, socialization, um, being vulnerable, really sinking into a more human energy is very difficult when you're operating in that fight or flight mode. And if people are increasingly going there and resourcing from that place, and then coupling that with bad choices around exercise and diet and other things and, and compounding that problem mm -hmm. and you look at the results are only going, the results are very predictable in terms of higher amount of stress and all these societal problems that we're currently talking about in isolation. And what we should be talking about is the larger picture and how all of these things are relatively interconnected. And where I've sat with it from my perspective is I think we, if we believe, and you, talk, you mentioned earlier the highest degree of, of humanity is self-actualization. If we move on that assumption, and if our ultimate purpose is to be in broader service to society, to this planet, to each other, then ultimately the answer is you do the best that you can given the tools that you're able to acquire over the course of your life. And for some people, that's going to mean that they're not going to be able to contribute or they may be a net deficit, but they worked, have worked really hard to mitigate the impact. Yeah. And for some people, it's going to mean that they could otherwise enrich themselves, but are going to have to give a lot more to others. And they're going to have to be okay with air quotes, taking less in service to a number of people. And there are going to be people that have to make in every place along this trajectory are going to have to make tough choices between collective interest and self-interest. Yes. Yeah. And ultimately that's the lens in which I try and view this problem is I try and ask myself, what is the impact I can have is best from in the best place that I have it from. Mm -hmm. And how do I encourage other people to tap into theirs? Yeah. And if we can do that really well, then I think we have something to start from. Yeah, and a long no, and a long I, way to go. I can concur because and um, yeah, look, the power of one, the power of two, the power of networks. I completely, completely agree with everything that you've just said. And there is hope. This is not. This is not. Um, we don't want to end on a on a on a on a downer. We want to. I think people are increasingly realizing that they 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 can take control of their own lives. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, it's that cl classic Spider-Man quote, isn't it? With great power comes great responsibility. And the, you know, the, the word that comes to, to my mind, particularly in relation to leadership now, Matt, is around uh, stewardship and legacy. And I'm particularly, I particularly like the stewardship word because it lends itself to this idea that nothing belongs to us. We are simply holding it for some, somebody else. Mm. 
And I think this idea of perhaps job for life or this is mine, you know, this is my job, this is my house, this is my car. Maybe this future of work, this fourth industrial revolution is going to be that moment in human history where we can let go and embrace freedom and become ourselves in the truest sense of stewardship and legacy and love ultimately. That's, that's what I'm hoping for. And I can't think of a better way to, to end this conversation. Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you. At Bento HR, we enable your HR strategy with custom HR technology procurement, implementations, and integrations to liberate your team from administration, enhance their productivity and experience, to position them at the center of your organization's transformation, where they belong. With experience as an HR executive myself, I have a real appreciation of the challenges facing today's HR leaders. The world is changing. Your industry is being disrupted. Your organization is transforming. And all the while, you're trying to do more with less. You're being asked to simultaneously model fiscal restraint while the expectations of your departments are only increasing. At Bento HR, we can support you at every stage of your transformation, from architecting the strategy to developing and selling the business case internally. We support procurement, implementations, and ongoing sustainment. And we tie it all together with a deep knowledge of the HR profession. And over six decades of combined experiences from our founding team, who has worked in or supported large HR organizations across multiple industries, including, but not limited to, financial services, technology, retail, transportation, and healthcare. Check out Bento HR today to build your very own Bento box, which doubles as your business case for transformation. Leveraging recent research into the upside of digital automation inside organizations, and with your help in answering a few simple questions related to your organization, our Bento Builder will provide a directional business case for change. So log on to www.bentohr.com and build your Bento box today.